Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had the conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 74, with the title, Lighting the Blue Touch Paper of Understanding. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Matt Gutwell. Matt describes himself as a neurodiversity awareness consultant and speaker. When I asked Matt to describe his superpower, he said, I'm the fact that I'm actually still alive, despite my best efforts in my younger years. I can't wait to find out about that. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Nice to hear you. Nice to see you. Our pleasure. Thanks, Matt. So tell me, lighting the blue touch paper of understanding, what do you mean? Really simply, it's my way of saying that when I talk to people, whether it's consulting, training, speaking on the topic of neurodiversity, I'm not trying to give them all the information and all the knowledge about the topic because that's just not possible in the timeframes we often have. So lighting the blue touch paper is exactly that. I want to give them enough information that they're informed, that they feel confident, that they can go away and have meaningful conversations and helpful conversations with colleagues or clients or suppliers or friends and family. And then that if they want to carry on learning themselves, they've got some idea of what to look for and where to look for it. So it is really like the firework. I like the touch paper and hopefully they take it from there. Love that. I love that because people expect you to come in for an hour, do a quick chat. And you, as you say, all you can do is that little quick dip. This is, this is the basic knowledge. And uh, yeah. I talk about cultural intelligence. And one of the key attributes of that is the drive. So you have to want to find out more. And then the second part of that is, is the knowledge. So what you're doing is you're, you're teaching a man to fish so that the man can get, or the, the woman or the non-binary person can go out and, and find the information for themselves, not expect to be mm. spoon-fed with everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more I've done this, the more I've learned that sometimes there's an expectation that people will stand in front of somebody and say, I am an expert, I am the expert on this topic, and I'm, I'm probably the only person professional who says, please don't call me an expert. I'm not an expert. I've got 15 years of studying this. I've got 15 years of living it, of working with hundreds and hundreds of neurodivergent people, of supporting them, of my own experience, of my children. But that doesn't mean that I think I'm an expert. If somebody else wants to call me that, that's their decision. But what I am is able to communicate everything I know in a manner that hopefully people can understand that they can then take away and decide what they want to do with it next. So it, it's using the abilities I know I've always had, and particularly somebody once described me as being very odd because I can teach anybody anything, even if I can't do it myself. Now, 
that made me chuckle, but the, the, the lady that said that was quite right. But when it comes to this, when it comes to neurodiversity and neurodivergent conditions, I do know this. This is my wheelhouse. This is my thing. What I want to do is make it a normal conversation. And I don't think that needs someone with the expert hat on. It needs someone with the I can help you understand it hat on. So that that's what I do. That's the approach I take every time I meet people. Um, and it seems to work. I completely agree with your um, shying away from the word expert. I mean, I, I would never use the word expert to describe myself. And as you say, if people want to call me it, that's fine. That's their choice. I'm not going to argue with you. I prefer specialist. Uh, that's yeah. what I specialize in. Um, that's immutable and undeniable. Uh, but I think it's expert is subjective. I, I agree. And that you can't know everything about everything. Um, you just know a lot about something. And yes. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. How, how would you describe yourself? So I've seen in your bio, so you, neurodiversity <sighs> in what way? What, what's, what's the description right, of you? So, okay, so neurodiversion is is purely because of three things. So um, diagnosed clinically in 2019 or at the end of 2019 with combined, well, rather with severely disabling combined subtype ADHD. Um, a year later, came to the recognition and the self-awareness that, yes, there was autism there as well with, well, you can take your pick, either pathological demand avoidance or oppositional demand avoidance, depends on which which three letters you want to use. But essentially, you know, I, I, I think of it as PDA. Uh, and then this year, despite my best efforts, <laughs> had to ag- admit after doing multiple tests that, oh, actually, yes, there is dyslexia here as well. And I would say it shouldn't have come as a shock. It shouldn't have been a surprise. I know enough to know that it's a very common comorbid condition. It's just that it actually made me reframe my own perceptions of dyslexia. And I, I, I knew enough to know differently but so i sit here with you know this this triple uh label if you like all these letters after my name um but they've always been there just because i got my diagnosis formally when i was 45 and 46 47 respectively it, it it's always things that have been in me part of me affected me made me do everything i've done the way i've done them um so it's very much my identity. I'm proud of it. I'm happy about it. But before I even ever thought about talking about me, I'd got two sons who were diagnosed with autism, both of them when they were age four, so 15 months apart, but both age four, um, who've later gone on to be diagnosed with ADHD. And the passion and the drive and the desire to learn from both me and my wife, who who is a professional in this industry as well, came from their diagnosis okay we need to know everything we know about this we need to study everything we can about this and then suddenly you find yourself learning about other conditions by sort of by default and i just always became fascinated i never wasn't fascinated by it and never stopped talking about it um which i think means that i come at it from a different angle so there are many people who are late diagnosed there are many people who have that recognition as late diagnosis and then, you know, me included, decide they want to talk about it or help other people understand it. But what I very often see is they don't have and they haven't had that wealth of previous experience of not thinking about them, it not being all about their experience, it being about others and understanding others. 
and and I think that's really important because I see it through some very different lenses to a lot of people. Um, but it helps me give a a much more rounded description of things. Hmm. Um, so that's what I always try to do. I start with others, and then if people want to know my experience, I'll tell them. But my experience is a percentage of the whole picture. I've heard other people tell me that they were diagnosed later in life as a result of having their children diagnosed. And once the children were diagnosed, it almost reminded them or or, or gave them an awareness of, hang on, that's me as well. You're talking about me here, not just my oh, children. Yeah. 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 And listen, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't how it came about with me. Um, so the first sort of, recognition i suppose that adhd may have been a thing uh came about really strangely i was attending a conference on children with asperger's hosted by a phenomenal australian professor um and at the time i was the circus skills teacher that was the career previously um and i had had some success in using circus skills to help children with additional needs, but particularly autism, um, be included in in after-school clubs. So I ran several after-school clubs, and it had just become a sort of a a thing where 60% of the kids that attended were autistic, or their parents thought they were, or they were dyslexic or dyspraxic or ADHD. Now, that was never something I actively set out to achieve. It's just that they, they seemed to... Uh, resonate with me and I seem to be able to get the best out of them. So when I went to the conference, or in fact, in the weeks running up to the conference, I bombarded this poor chap with emails, giving him my my theory about how juggling would change the world for kids in education with autism and why it was the best thing since sliced bread. And, and I mean, bombarded is an understatement. And I was just desperate for some time with him. You know, I already thought this guy was incredible. And he eventually said, look, I can give you 10 minutes of lunch, but it's my lunch. It's the only break I get. That's all great. And I remember standing over a coffee with him and and, and about to launch into this. And he said, can I just stop you? He said, before you say anything, everything you've done and the way you've approached it says to me that you might not have the awareness of yourself that would really help you going forwards. Oh, that's a curveball. Okay, I'm sorry, what do you mean? He said, you've got two children with Asperger's. Yes. Have you ever considered that you might be somewhere on the same spectrum? Of course not. Otherwise, I'd know. Well, no, you wouldn't. He said, actually, I believe that you are displaying really, really pronounced ADHD. And by the way, everything that you've overshared privately about your wife tells me she's probably autistic. Here are two non-clinical assessments to do online. What I'd like you to do is go away and do those and send me an email and let me know what you find out. Now, that was the conversation. I never got to tell him about the juggling. And I kind of went away a bit shell-shocked, sat through the rest of the conference thinking, I don't, uh, what, what? And lo and behold, got home, administered the, these tests to each other. And that was the first awareness that I was as off the scale with ADHD as it was likely ever to be. And that my wife probably did have Asperger's. And it blew me away because I'd never thought about it. But then when I stopped 
and I started learning what I could then about ADHD, it was the penny drop moment. In fact, it wasn't a penny drop. It was like that, um, what's that game Ben Shepherd hosts, Tipping Point, you know, where all the coins go. Yeah, it wasn't one. It was thousands of the things going ding, 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 ding. And everything was just a life experience and something that had happened that made me go, oh, now I get it. And at that point, so that would have been uh, 20, where are we now? 2022, maybe around 2016, I think. At that point, I took that quite happily, thought, yeah, this fits, and then started speaking in schools locally, including my sons, because they were still in school at the time, trying to help other kids and parents understand that it was okay to be different because I felt that there was a problem, and there still is. Um, So I started to speak publicly about it. This is great. Um, But because I was still trying to run my own business at the time, and because ADHD makes it so phenomenally difficult at certain times, as much as it makes it better at others. By the time really the start of 2019 came around, I knew that I was heading for some kind of a crash. I could tell that things weren't right. I'd lost all the passion for what I was doing. I'd lost all the energy. I'd lost all the the enthusiasm. And I started doing what I always do when I get very depressed and I suffer with with sort of lifelong depression and, and suicidal ideation is just part of my makeup. Um, I started to desperately seek other projects that I thought would make things better. So I dropped everything that if I'd focused on it and stuck with it could have made money to try and do the next great thing, none of which ever worked. And it all came to a head when I decided I was going to be an event host because all I can do is speak, right? People had said, oh, could you host this event, that event? I had a few small events. People loved me. That's fine. And then for some reason, I I can't even remember how, I'd got it in my head that I was going to host a fairly sizable charity event at the NIA in Birmingham in front of hundreds of sort of, celebrities and dignitaries i was going to get to interview two very famous people about their their history and addictions and things and i just convinced myself i'd got this gig nobody ever said i had nobody once said you've got it they said we'll put you forward but because i was so bad i decided i had and then three three and a half months went by and um, i don't know maybe a fortnight out from the gig eventually someone brave enough called me and said look you were never in the running. Never. We just didn't know how to say you weren't. And I was, I remember it as clear as day. I was lay on the sofa with my wife on a chair opposite me. And I was already bad. I was, you know, I was teary and I was stressed. And they said that. And I threw my mobile phone across the room. I don't know how I didn't smash the television to this day. And I just broke down. I mean, the most uncontrollable sobbing I, I, I can imagine. And it's the first time I'd ever, because I couldn't stop myself, said to my wife, I just don't see the point in living anymore. I'm too tired. I've had enough. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of failing. I'm tired of life being difficult. I'm tired of letting you down. Kids, all this came out. And through all the sobbing, all I could get out to her was, I think I need to know whether ADHD has got more to do with this than I'm admitting. And I'm aware that medication can help some people with, with ADHD as bad as mine. 
and I don't think I'm going to get any peace until I know. But it's expensive and we don't have any money. And the wait in this for the NHS is ridiculous. Fine. Spoke to my father and mother who were separated, but I spoke to them both on the same night. They were incredible. They said, look, we didn't know. Why didn't you tell us? That's suicide for you. That's ideation for you. You don't tend to share it until. And they said, great. Okay, well, look, it's expensive. We want you to go away and give us three options of private diagnosis. And we want you to go to the GP and talk to them about it. Put yourself on a waiting list and see what we can do. Now, I did that. I knew I'd get nowhere with the doctors. They tried to give me antidepressants. I said, this isn't just depression. So I'm not taking them. That's that's just prescription for the sake of prescription. Put me on a wait in this for ADHD and expedite it. Well, they can't do that. But, you know, came home, said to my parents, well, in which case it's got to be private. Um, and I was fortunate that a couple of weeks later, they booked and I got a private diagnosis. Um, and I mean, that literally changed everything on that day. I can't, like, it was towards the end of December 2019. And I went in knowing what I was going in for, knowing that I was going to have a diagnosis, knowing that I'd done all the preclinical trials that said I was definitely ADHD, knowing that I was angling for medication is the wrong term. But, you know, I thought that was the only route to help. And yet, spent an hour and a half with an assessment with a psychiatrist, <laughs> kind of told her everything that I thought was salient at the time. She just sat there making lots of notes. Oh, she didn't know that. Um, and then she stopped me and said, okay, do you want to get your parents and your wife in? Do I need to? Yeah, I think you need to. Okay, let's get my parents and my wife in then. Let's, let's do that. Fine. Got them in. And she said, okay, so it's at this point, uh, Matthew, I can tell you that there's no question you have one of the most severely disabling cases of combined subtype ADHD I've ever diagnosed in an adult of your age. And it's no hyperbole to say that it's a miracle that you're still alive despite your best intentions or your best efforts, which is where that comes from. She, did, she said, in fact, I think the only reason you are still alive is because you're lucky enough to be married to your wife. Everything you've told me is, has said that she's it. At which point I was literally, I'm never silent, right, Joe? I don't do quiet. And I was stunned. I knew I was going to be diagnosed, but I didn't know it was going to be that, even though I should have. And my parents started asking questions and, and, and trying to, you know, qualify it. My wife was just, she went from being very, neutral to sort of smiling and going okay this is good this is good and she kept saying to me this is good this is okay um and and then oddly at that point she asked my parents a couple of questions she said did you ever suspect no okay did he ever do things that you thought were different no not particularly was he naughty no not particularly and then it all came out well he never shut up i mean he was never quiet and, and and he was cheeky. He always had an answer for everything. And he only got on with adults, didn't know how to get on with his peers. And then my dad told me that something I never do. I remembered the holiday. I'd been taken to Disney World with him on a business trip when I was nine. Um, and he said, you know, I mean, I guess that's why 
we were almost thrown out of Disney World twice because of you. So what do you mean thrown out of Disney? What did I do? She said, you didn't know how to queue. You had no concept of patience or waiting for a queue. And if you wanted to see Daffy Duck or Mickey Mouse or go on the biggest ride, you would just literally barge past people to get to the front of the queue. And you were returned to me by umpteen security guards to the point that, turns out, we were taken into an office in the bowels of Disney World and told under no uncertain terms, control this child or you're never coming back. I didn't know. Nobody told me. But, I mean, wow, just wow. So, yeah, it all came out. I got the diagnosis, which would have been fine. Start titration period for drugs would have been fine. But then COVID hit. So all of the therapies I was supposed to have, all of the counselling I was supposed to go to, all of the things that were supposed to start helping me cope just suddenly vanished. And it turned out that I was left just coming out the other side of suicidal ideation with this new diagnosis of a disabling condition, suddenly being told you're disabled, right? Um, and kind of fending for myself, taking medication that had completely changed my brain, struggling to adapt and having to figure out how to make money in a virtual world because COVID had hit. Just <laughs> unbelievable, yeah. right? Um, unbelievable set of circumstances but you know what somehow not somehow because of my wife i'm still here so you mentioned several terms you mentioned adhd which is yeah attention deficit hyperactivity disorder you've mentioned yeah. autism aspergers which are yeah. part of the asd autism spectrum disorder uh how, how how do they manifest you know the adhd is, is more about the the attention deficit and then the hyperactivity. So you, you kind of always, always on fire. You're always bouncing around, but you, so you, this is you the find thing, it hard to focus to. No. So it's weird for me. And what I've learned since is really interesting. Um, for me, I was never classically hyperactive as in I was, I was physical. I did a club every single day of the week as a child from the age of four. Now that was my mom knowing I had quote unquote, lots of fizz, lots of energy. So I needed to be tired out so I'd sleep, okay? So while she could say that was hyperactive, I wasn't naughty in that way. I didn't bounce off the walls. I didn't do these things. But I never, ever shut up. And it wasn't because I wanted to talk. It's because what I realized is my brain never stopped going. I, from the minute I woke up to the minute I eventually slept, would have a million thoughts, a million miles an hour, 24 hours a day. And at some point, they come out and they have to come out. And they come out at inappropriate moments or they come out as a lack of patience. And that just carried on into adulthood. Right? It, it's just the way I've always been. Mm. I've always overspoken. I've always overshared. So that for me was how the hyperactive came out. It's a hyperactive brain. The inattentive side of it is exactly that. I get very distracted if I'm not engaged when the dopamine levels are low and the neuroepinephrine levels are low and the serotonin levels are low. I'm not interested. I'm not going to pay bills, do my tax returns, do admin, do the things I know I should do because they don't hold any interest. It has to get to critical, someone knocking on the door saying, now, for me to take action, still. Now, that's insane because I know that's part of me, but it still happens mm. because I go into full-on sort of um, 
hyperfixation on other things. I have this extreme avoidance tactics. You know, it, it just everything is one compounds the other, compounds the other. The autism, interestingly, was really strange because the way that came out was um, mid last year now. I decided I wanted to try and get some counselling because I was still, I was in a really bad place. I was really depressed again. My wife finally said, look, go for counselling. I found somebody I thought I could trust, had an online pre session with her. Um, and she was saying, like, tell me about yourself. Da, 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 da. Tell her everything, tell her about the ADHD. Now, bear in mind, I was on a super strong dose of ADHD meds at this point. So what I not quite picked up on was how very different I presented on meds to not. But that was fine. So I'm talking to her, ADHD, ADHD, ADHD. And she stopped me. She said, great. What about the autism? What autism? What on earth are you on? I'd have told you I had autism if I had autism. She said, no, I'm sorry. Can I be blunt with you? She said, my granddaughters and my daughter all have autism with PDA. And I went silent again. And she said, I'm sorry, have I upset you? And I said, no, I've just now got to talk to my wife and say you were right again. And it's getting to be a joke. What do you mean? So five years ago, when my children were home educated, we met a lot of children with PDA, pathological demand avoidance. We learned about it because we had to learn how to work with them and cope with them and da da da. And she said five years ago, I swear blind, you've got PDA. No, no, I haven't. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah, you have. No, I haven't. And, and the, the counselor is just sat there and well, I'm telling you now, I'm almost sure you have. Here's a couple, again, preclinical online assessments to do. I'd suggest you go away and do them. So one was a PDA, adult PDA, and the other then was what's known as a, um, and I forget the term of it now, but a, a missed diagnosis adult autism test. So if you took the original test, like the EQ test, you know, took that and missed it, AQ test, sorry, and missed it, it, it's a different style of questioning. Take the PDA test. What do you know? Off the charts. I mean, literally as high as the ADHD score. Okay. Take the misdiagnosis test. Blow me down unequivocally without question. There's autism. There is autism glaring you in the face. And then when I looked at it and I thought about it, it again, it was that, penny machine again just all over again oh yeah 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 i've never got jokes i've never quite fitted in i've never felt like i've had my place i've never felt like i belonged i've never felt able to to really be part i've been part of clubs right i've been part of organizations and all the time never felt i fitted in Never felt it was right. I always thought people were talking about me behind my back or I wasn't right. That was the autism. This massive lifelong anxiety of I don't belong here, coupled with a lot of other stuff that I've since realized, was the autism and the anxiety coming out. Mm. And when I put the two together, I went, now I'm beginning to build an even better picture of this. Now I'm seeing even more how these both work in tandem. They're comorbid. They're coexisting conditions. I think, what did I read the other day? It's something like 70 or 80% of those with ADHD have autism and vice versa. Mm. 
This should not have been a surprise. It shouldn't have been, but it did still floor me again. So you, so you, you functioned for 45 or so of your years on the planet without a diagnosis. Well, functioned is a loose description. Yeah. Stayed so, okay. alive. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> how... What... Yeah, the, I, I would assume based on what you said is there there are many people at, in the world in the workplace who yeah. are undiagnosed. Oh. So how can employers spot um, someone with maybe some of these ASD, the spectrum disorder, or some sort of ADHD or ADD? Right. ADA? Now, yeah, I say this all the time. It's a really hard question to answer. To say how can they spot it? leads us down a bit of a dangerous path of yep. someone kind of taking someone aside, which we know they can't really do, and saying, look, are you okay because, right? Now, what they can do is take some awareness training, take someone on board to deliver, like I do, deliver neurodiversity awareness, which is a broad stroke that covers everything they they need to know and nothing that they don't need to know. It gives them enough knowledge to be helpful so that then if somebody says to them, look, I'm struggling, they maybe have something they can refer back to. They have something in place. What's great now is lots of the bigger um, sort of employee assistance programs do have referrals for psychiatric assessments for ADHD autism on them dyslexia on them that you know people people can access those for free but it has to come from the person it can't mm. come the other way around it just can't you know it, it it just wouldn't work um but if employers are willing to invest in that what they then are able to do is support people and potentially retain people who at their best could be fantastic employees and at the worst could really struggle it's helping those people manage the struggles, right? That's what I didn't have. I say this regularly. The only reason I remain to be self-employed now and I've been self-employed for 15 years is because I'm unemployable. Fact. Nobody can cope with me. I can't cope with working for anyone else. PDA. Tell me what to do and I just refuse, right? And employers are very much, you need to do this. Nope. Right. Employers don't tend to give you options and say, would you do one or the other, which is how my brain tends to work. Right. However, if an employer understands it and then it, uh, the sad truth is it will normally come about when somebody's struggling hmm. and they go to the mental health first aid or they go to HR and say I'm struggling or worse, they get signed off sick with stress, anxiety or depression. And then they sit at home doing some digging, thinking what's going on? They have to come to a realization of what the the cause rather than the symptom is to be able to then go back and say, look, is there anything we can do? Mm. Right. If it doesn't happen that way, it's unlikely to be effective. But it doesn't mean it's not possible. And and once an employer starts saying to their staff, hey, we've invested in neurodiversity awareness training and you're all going to be put through it. And. If after the training anyone has any private concerns, please do feel free to talk to us. We are here to talk to. You might get that one person that's been going, oh, thank God, because I never thought they would. I read something earlier today. There are still so many people 
this was in the city in fact it was an article about people working in the city in london there are so many people in the city who refuse to declare that they know they've got a neurodivergent condition because they are fearful that it will affect their career which means they go to work every day they do the very best they can to be the best version of themselves they can by the way it's not masking i hate that term it's nonsense and i can explain why so they go out trying to be the best version of them they can and then come home burnt out, frazzled, exhausted and crash. And what tends to happen is then they go down the route of addiction because they try and self-medicate with alcohol, with drugs, with cigarettes, with sex, with whatever it may be, because they're looking for a dopamine high that makes them feel better, makes them feel quote unquote normal. And then they do it all again doesn't work it only ends up in a crash but if employers can say look you will not lose your job if you disclose this and we can support you guess what you might retain that person that's what i think the approach should be hmm. as you're talking now just looking up add because I, I i don't have any hyperactivity i don't believe no one knows yeah but i certainly see myself of having some signs of the add i and i I, I certainly right. drift off in my, into my own thoughts. I, if I'm into something, I do it a thousand percent. If I if I'm not into it, it, it just gets yeah. dropped or I ignore it. I move on. Um, yeah. I, I need that. I need that hit, as you say, the brain chemicals. The brain chemicals yeah. aren't being hit. Uh, I, right. I, I I procrastinate. I distract myself. Or I, I go, what's shiny? Let's look at the shiny stuff. Yeah, 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 absolutely right. Now, look, here's the thing. Okay, so there's two things. A this is me being a disruptor again. I don't buy into ADD as a term. It was used in America by adults that didn't want to say they were hyperactive. You're either ADHD or you're not. That's just, that's, they just put that out there. But again, it's not physical. It's this. When you say you're distracted, you go shiny, you go, what can I do next? Your brain's going. The, the mm. best description I can give you, do you know what a zoetrope is? No. Nope. Right, so uh, it's the old Victorian animation device. It looks like a cylinder with slots cut in it, vertical slots all the way around oh, yeah. it. And it used to have pictures of a horse, typically. Oh, and yes. Spin it, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. So an ADHD brain is a zoetrope with a thousand slots, with a thousand different pictures that spins at a thousand miles an hour all day, every day. And what your brain is fighting to do, if you don't know how to help it, is it's fighting to catch one of those thoughts and do something with it. Right. What happens is your brain will start seeing it go round and round enough to go, well, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. And I don't Oh, shiny. And it will keep watching the shiny thing come round until you can stop it, grab it and focus on that. That's ADHD. And it's it's so hard not to do it. It's ridiculously hard not to do it. Hmm. But that's how it works. Now, medication helps for those that need it. It's a tool because it, it artificially floods the brain with um, dopamine, neuroepiphrine as well, serotonin to a degree, which I, I can't describe this any other way. Forgive me using a drug reference here, okay? If you've ever seen images of people in nightclubs who've taken speed, right? They are completely wired. Whoop, 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 disco, 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 24 hours, eyes wide, can't stop. Okay. You give somebody with ADHD their medication, which is essentially doing a similar thing, and they will go to sleep. When I first took 
my strongest dose of, of um, what's known as fast acting methylphenidate, which is this artificial dopamine um, drug. <laughs> I, at the time, I had an old acquaintance of mine was questioning whether I was putting it on, was questioning whether I needed this stuff, right? And what was fascinating was I took this drug, 10 milligrams, and the next thing I know, my wife was waking me up two and a half hours later. I literally passed out. It was the single best sleep I've ever had. And I recorded a video, a message to this chap going, if you want to sell me, this is fake. If you took this, you'd go the other way. I can barely string a sentence together. And this is exactly what this drug is doing. And it's just brain chemistry. It's just the way our brains are wired. It's what happens. Now, look, what's the current figures? I think we're still stating one in seven people around the world live with ADHD, known or not. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon, right? One of the greatest things I found out that helped me answer a lot of questions this year, again, in its knowledge, is this... um, not a new term. I, hate, I, I sort of hesitate to say that. I think it was coined in the early 2000s, but it's getting more credibility now. Is this term of being um, neuroqueer, right? So it's this joining of people who are neurodivergent and identify as LGBTQI+. Well, I've been bisexual all my life. I know I've been bisexual all my life. Right? I just never understood what maybe drove that. The minute I realized that it's very much connected to the autism and the ADHD, everything again made sense. And I went, oh, right. okay, yeah, I understand how these things fit together. And all I'm on this mission to do, go back to light the blue touch paper. I want everyone else to be open enough to discuss everything with an open mind to say, okay, yeah, we understand that. How do we support people? What is it they need? What is it we can do to help them? And if it's a two-way conversation, then that's the best route, isn't it? But it takes a lot of bravery, a lot of conversations. And, and you know, it's it's been interesting for me to to admit that publicly on LinkedIn this year. But you mm. know what? I think, well, why, why hide it? Why not? Why and not tell people that? What I've always wondered is, when do we decide that being neurotypical was typical. And, you know, I think, mm. I think, I think about our human evolution, 100,000 years, where however long we've been uh, uh, classed as human. Yeah. We, we, we didn't used to write in those days. We didn't have a kind of a, nope. an office environment. So I, I would have thought that dyslexia, for example, is kind of like a modern thing. You know, we didn't need to write or be able to read 20,000 years ago. So... We've decided that people who can read and write now are clever and people who can't aren't. You think, hang on a minute, my brain was never designed this way. Yeah, you're right. But I suppose then, again, what that comes back to is helping people gain the knowledge of what these things do actually mean in totality, like dyslexia. Okay, reading, reading and writing is part of it, but it isn't all of it. No. You know, it's about problem solving. It's about creativity. It's about the ability to see around solutions that other people may not see. So when you know that most people with ADHD have probably got dyslexia, have probably got autism, what you've got is three very different ways of thinking about things that other brains just will never get to. I mean, they'll Mm. never get there, right? Fine. Is that deficit? No. 
Is it deficit if these people are told it's deficit? Well, mm, now there's a different argument, isn't it? But you want to go back to the hunter-gatherer solution or the hunter-gatherer sort of um, scenario, right? Go back to early man. Yeah, we didn't read all right, but I guarantee, I guarantee that the people that figured out the ways to entrap different animals to know what berries were the safe ones to eat and which weren't, they weren't the ones who we would now class as neurotypical. I at agree. all yeah they I were the, the, the the best analogy i was ever ever given i ever heard was um when when the comedian rory bremner uh was diagnosed he did it as part of a documentary and the uh the specialist he saw said something fantastic he said okay imagine this imagine tomorrow morning in the middle of the indian ocean a thousand miles from anywhere in any direction an island suddenly pops up and it's an island populated with 10,000 people and they have no reference of the rest of the world. They have just appeared. They don't know what's on the island. They don't know shelter. They don't know food. They don't know fear. Within time, there will be people that will walk around that island looking at things hanging from trees, looking into the water. And there will be those that look up and look in going, that might be dangerous. And at the same time, there will be those that are already climbing, eating and swimming. Now, they're probably the ones with ADHD and no filter. But you know what they're doing? They're proving the concept because they'll either die or they'll survive and go, guys, I found food or guys, I'm food. But we need that. The world needs that. The world needs that ability to say, OK, do you? In the best way you can do you, because it might just be what we need. Now, is that typical or different? No, not to me. It's not. I can't bear the word neurotypical, if I'm honest. I think it was just a lazy term because we went neurodivergent. Well, what's the opposite of divergent? It must be normal. Oh, please. Right. And the fact that there's one in five people, I think one in seven is it the other way around? One in seven, one in eight, globally neurodivergent, says enough to say this isn't nor abnormal anymore. And by the way, that's only based on figures we know who have been diagnosed. Think about all the undiagnosed people in the world that we were mm. talking about earlier on, right? Guaranteed it's higher. Guaranteed it is. But it's what we do to make it normal in conversation. We do. We want to put people in these little boxes and say, well, you're this, you're that. It's like yep. as you as you talk, you mentioned neuroqueer, or yeah, the, the intersectional yep. queer identity, uh, understanding your own gender, your sense of self, yep. your sexuality, um, stepping out of the social construct that you've been told you have to live by, um, yep. and I think a lot of it is comes down to how self reflective you are, how introspective you are, how you prepare mm. to question your own identity about who you are. Many people don't. Yeah. Many people just go go through life just taking every day as as it comes, where some people actually analyse it and you say, oh, shiny, let's go see if I can eat that. Yeah, if I can climb yeah that. exactly. Right, exactly. And look, at the end of the day, it's going to take a long time before more people are willing to accept people stepping out of the constructs, I think. Mm. Okay? But it will happen. I'm sure it will happen. It just takes more brave people like you and hopefully like me and everyone else talking about these things openly and honestly and not shying away from stuff that's difficult. Saying, look, I'm not embarrassed to tell you this. I'll tell you this. That's fine. You want to know? There you go. There's, there, there's everything on the table. Fine. Right? If it helps someone else find their place in the world, that's perfect. 
Because when we don't talk, when we're not open, when we still are riddled with social norms and, and, and what's right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable, to coin a phrase, people are too afraid to live authentically, to be who they feel they want to be, mm. right? That's just not right. Sorry, no, that's just no, not right. I completely agree. And that's the challenge, getting people to to realise that they're not on this conveyor belt of life that they have no option on. They can press stop. No. They can get off and go, who am I? Who am I? What's important to me? What do I want? Yeah, absolutely. Society wants yeah. you on this conveyor belt. Society wants order. Society wants predictability. And when you step out of that, it, it goes, ah, society becomes frightened that you're you're, yeah. you're radical, you're anarchic, you're different. It's like you're not going yeah. by the rules. Well, no, I, I like rules. Rules are fine. I just, yeah. like to know, I just like to know where the rules are so I can either ignore them, um, yeah. challenge them, or conform yeah. to them. I, yeah, I don't... I don't yeah. I don't no, I, like I completely... And listen, here's the thing, right? You, you can talk about a period of enlightenment in the past 10 years, 15 years, whether it's to do with race, gender, neurodivergence, it doesn't matter what it is. I learned some fascinating things about my own family earlier this year, in, in things that blew me away, that make you think, these things have always existed. They just haven't been spoken about, not not publicly, not not, you know, openly, but they've always been there. Right. We are now at a point where people are talking about things more. Wonderful. Great. It's making those conversations then go somewhere, be useful, develop into something. Does that make sense? Mm. And 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 I still have a fear. that. Particularly in neurodiversity, what I see is there are lots of people trying to do good work, but they're, they're not they're not quite sure what they're doing. They think they know, and they're they're blurring the lines between being an influencer and an advocate, mm. right? And there's this whole I've got lived experience, and therefore I'm an expert, and you should listen to me, and I'm going to do. Th-. Sorry. Your lived experience is lovely, it's wonderful, and it's perfectly valid, but it's yours and yours alone, and it doesn't tell anyone anything about other people. So you need to step back, go away, do some work, work with other people, understand other people, get a depth of knowledge, then come back and say you're an expert, if that's what you want to call yourself. Specialist, I think I prefer, like you said, right? Because it's not about being an influencer. The only influence I want to have is that when my teenage sons, who are 17 and 16, go into the world of work, there are more people that understand them, accept them, and are just happy for them to be who they are. Are we setting people up for unfair expectations? Because I hear lots of things. People with autism are mathematical geniuses. People with ADHD Uh have superpowers. Are we creating this this stereotypical myth? Where people say, so like, I, I've been diagnosed, yes. but, I, but I'm not a mathematical genius. I'm not Rain Man. Yes. I'm creating this belief. Right. So here's the thing. Yes, we are. I hate it. I hate it. I fight it with a passion. It, it, it is between that and masking. They're the two terms I hear every day that I just think are the most destructive and damaging for anyone who is neurodivergent. And a lot of the time, it's the neurodivergent people saying it because they just haven't realized why yet. So let's break the superhero thing down. Superheroes, as an analogy, in my understanding, was used initially way back in the 1980s 
to help little children between the ages of three and seven accept that they might be a bit different to their classmates. So little children whose parents were brave enough to have had them diagnosed with ADHD or autism or dyslexia, whatever, it was their way of saying, it's okay because it's your superpower because you're really good at being creative, artistic, funny, quick, fast, sporty. Doesn't matter what their talent was. Saying it was their superpower. Fantastic. And I still say it to the young children that I still support when I do. But when a grown person, I know I'm, I'm, listen, when someone over the age of 18 starts saying, I'm a neurodivergent superhero, it's my dyslexic superpower, I just think, why are you belittling yourself and everyone else? And worse, yay you. If you really believe that it's your dyslexia, to pick a thing, that makes you so good at this, right? And if you're going to tell the world that it's only that, you're right. You're setting everyone else up with dyslexia who doesn't achieve like that and doesn't think like that and can't do what you do to feel like, and forgive me now, the shit dyslexic, the shit autistic, the shit ADHD. Because what they do, and believe me, I know because I've been there, is they sit there going, well, not only have I got this, but I'm really rubbish at having it as well. Great. Guess what that leads to more often than not? Anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation and worse. Well done, everyone that keeps saying superheroes online. Thank you for doing that. I'm, I'm so grateful for you pushing so many people over the edge. When are they going to realise it's nonsense? And it's wrong. The same, I'm afraid to say, goes for masking. I understand where that comes from. And guess who it was first aimed at? It was aimed at little children, because what do superheroes wear in comic books? They wear masks when they're one thing and not when they're the other. Right? Is it a good analogy to use? Yes. Where does it belong once we get above 18 years old? In Marvel comics and on films. <laughs> it doesn't belong in conversations with grown-ups about neurodiversity or anything else for that matter. And by the way... You're talking to a man that spent 15 years in a costume performing as an entertainer. At no point ever in my life have I gone out with a mask on. Metaphorical or otherwise, I have never gone out being anything other than what I felt at that point was my authentic self. And yes, it was a challenge and no one ever felt like I fitted in. And yes, it was exhausted. And yes, I'd come back burnt out. That isn't because I was masking. I wasn't trying to fit in. I was trying to get other people to accept me, yeah, right, sure. to like me. When mm. people say, oh, it's so hard. Oh, God, you don't understand. I have to mask every day and it makes me so tired. Guess what the response to anyone else who doesn't mask is, anyone who's typical is? Well, how am I supposed to help you if you're wearing a mask? How am I supposed to know what you need if you're not being your authentic self? That's not fair. And you know what? They're absolutely right. Yeah. They're absolutely right. How's anyone supposed to know what someone needs if apparently they're wearing masks and pretending all the time? Now, think about it for a second. It makes absolutely no sense. 
It makes no sense that people mask, but they say it because they've heard it. Because they've heard it, parrot theory kicks in. Oh, they said masking, I'll say masking. If yeah. you just stop and think about it for five minutes, you realise it makes no sense, nor does being a superhero. No, I agree. But I, yeah. you know what? I get I get called out on this day in, day out, day in, day out when I say these things online, right? You can't say that. You're somebody somebody accused me recently of um what was I was I was not paying any respect or something along those lines to their their experience and their difficulty. You don't know how difficult it's been for me. And my response was, no, no, you're right. I don't. But I have spoken with thousands of neurodivergent people and I've seen them doing their very best to be themselves and not fit in and how exhausting it is. So I know that masking does more harm than good when you tell people that's what you're doing. I can evidence this. If you want to keep saying masking until you've got enough experience to understand why saying something else is better, fine. You go ahead, but believe me, your life's going to carry on being hard. So what is if you could, what's a better way of describing it then? Being me. I am going at you. If you're brave enough to say, look, I've got autism, I've got ADHD, I've got dyslexia. This is how they help me. And this is what I find difficult. And when I find it difficult, yeah, I might be blunt. No, I might not get conversational nuance. No, I might not keep up with the office politics. Yes, I might need a quiet space. Whatever it may be that you need. You just have to be open and say, I need this because if I don't have it, it causes me anxiety. It causes me difficulty. Okay. It makes you're, me you're shut creating down. creating a, a kind of a little mini manual, how to deal with me. These are my, yes. these are my instructions. You know, yes. if, I, if I do this, it, this is yes. how I'm feeling. If in order to make me feel safe, secure, valued, this is how it's a good way of treating me. And I, I don't think that's any should be specific to people who are ADHD, neurotypical. No. Or, or, no. I think we all, we all sometimes need that little manual. Right. If people are Here's my fantastic part about this. Right, I read something in lockdown, I think it was, about um, reasonable adjustments in the workplace for neurodivergent people. So the first thing was that 90% of reasonable adjustments were either less than £100 or completely free. So they don't cost businesses a great deal of money. And secondly, almost exclusively, they benefit everyone else who doesn't have a neurodivergent condition as well. They make environments a happier and a better place to work and make people more productive. But because they come out from the label of, well, Dave's a bit weird, Dave does this, Dave wants a quiet space, whatever, they get sort of barriers put up against them. Now, that's ridiculous. Hmm. Sorry. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm not labelled with any neurodiversity at all, but I don't like working in an environment where there's noise. I like quiet. I don't no. like the radio on. I like silence. No. And yeah. if people Fine. disturb me, it takes me about an hour and a half to recover from a, a disturbance. I have to start yes. get my brain back in it. So a lot of people would benefit, as you say, from quiet space, from... Uh, cubicles from lack of, you know, the, the expansion yeah. to open plan offices hasn't helped anybody apart from, Absolutely. apart from the command and control management that want to be able to look out and see you and check you're doing stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And that's, that's what I keep aiming towards. I keep aiming towards this world and this approach where we recognize that yes, people live with conditions, but they are people. They are people mm. with. Right. Yes, it might make things difficult for them. But yes, by the same token, it might mean they're really good at things. And I'm the first to admit that. 
I'm the first to admit that there is no way I would have achieved some of the things I've achieved. I would be able to do some of the things I've been able to do if I didn't have ADHD, if my autism wasn't present, right? And to some extent, my dyslexia. I get that. And I accept that. Does it mean I'm a superhero? Of course it doesn't. It means I have a skill set that I can leverage when I need to, but that at certain times it will flip that narrative for me and make it hard. Okay. All right. I have to live with that, understand that, accept that, know what to do with that. And all I'm trying to do is help organizations see that bigger picture as well. And I want to have the difficult conversations, Joe. I want to talk about the suicidal ideation. I want to talk about things when they're at their worst. I want to talk about the, 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 the crossing of the lines between gender and neurodiversity. All of these things are important to discuss with more people because the more people that understand them, the more we can affect actual meaningful change and the people that are living with these conditions will start finding things a lot easier, I hope. Matt, he says, this has been fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I can't believe we've been chatting away for well over an hour. I mean, we're 56 minutes on this podcast already. Uh, I have so much else I wanted to talk to you. I want to talk about your your magic, your alter ego. Yeah. We, we run out of time. Maybe we'll have to come back and have another day. Yeah, so- you never know. How can people get hold of you? What's the best way of reaching you? If they want to uh, so LinkedIn is my primary platform. Twitter's a dark art to me. So um, LinkedIn, just search Matt and then Gupwell, which is, uh, I'll, I'll do the posh way, golf, uniform, papa, whiskey, echo, lima, lima. So that's Gupwell. Um, if you search me on there and think neurodiversity.com uh, is uh, the consultancy name as well. Uh, and you can find me there. Uh, and yeah, and feel free, reach out, ask me questions. I'm always willing for people to sort of, Comment on posts, ask me questions, challenge things that I've said, um, uh, and, and to start debates because the world thrives on debates. Are you still doing any of your online magic and stuff illusions? No, no, stopped it all. No, I Not stopped all. it. That was that was part of the process of, of reinventing myself. So, you know, we spoke off air. I used, for 15 years, I've been called Monty. That was my nom de plume. It was a stage name. I was proud of it. But when I stopped that, the name stopped and it's been one of the hardest things I've ever done. Asking people not to call me that is so hard, but you know what? I need it. This is me, you know? Um, And, and so Matt's the name I was born with. It's the name I'll, I'll take with me. And, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good change. Helps the head. Well, coming from one person who had to find their own identity six years Mm. ago, um, back at you, Matt, for finding out who you are, and yeah, thank aligning you. yourself that authenticity so it's been an absolute pleasure to chat today and i seriously hope you meet in person one day somewhere, somewhere. yeah you never know i know yeah, i know yeah through all the mutual connections it's bonkers that we haven't but i'm sure we will at some point yeah well thank you so much and also a huge thank you to all the listeners who are tuned in right now and getting to the end really appreciate it um do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the inclusion bites podcast at b-i-t-e-s Please share this with your friends and colleagues. Post it on LinkedIn. Spread the word. Spread the love. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks, months, hopefully even years. And also, if you'd like to be a guest yourself, then please do let me know. I would always welcome your feedback, suggestions to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk on future shows and how we can improve, if you think we can. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.